you know, when the book goes out into the world, it becomes not mine anymore. It becomes a collaboration. And I think essentially that's what writing is. Writing is a collaboration between a writer and a reader. Um, and I do my part, you know, and then the book goes out into the world. And then the reader brings, um, you know, her life experience, lived experience to the page and brings the book to life in a completely different way. With thanks to Bailey's, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives, all while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Vic Hope and I'm your host for season six of Bookshelfie, the podcast that asks women with lives as inspiring as any fiction to share the five books by women that have shaped them. Join me and my incredible guests as we talk about the books you'll be adding to your 2023 reading list. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. This year's 2023 shortlist has now been announced. And what better way to discover these six spectacular books than by joining us for the Women's Prize Shortlist Book Club online. Wherever you are in the world, over three evenings in May, you can tune in to best-selling author Kate Moss, this year's six shortlisted authors, and a lineup of celebrated actors for a joyous celebration of women's writing. Featuring readings from the shortlisted novels, candid chat from the authors, and your chance to shape the conversation, this is the ultimate book club. Head to the Women's Prize website now to get your ticket. Today's guest is Ruth Ozeki, renowned author and winner of the 2022 Women's Prize for Fiction. Her winning novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness, bowled over last year's judges who described it as bold, humane and heartbreaking. Ruth is also a filmmaker and a Zen Buddhist priest. She is the author of four other novels, My Year of Meats, All Over Creation, A Tale for the Time Being, which was shortlisted for the 2013 Man Booker Prize and translated into 28 languages. She's also written a short memoir, Time Code of a Face. She lives in Northampton, Massachusetts, where she teaches creative writing at Smith College and is the Grace Jarko Ross 1933 Professor of Humanities. Mm-hmm. Through her thought-provoking work, Ruth continues to push boundaries and inspire readers, and we are delighted to have her on the podcast. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you so much, Rick. I read the book of Form and Emptiness um, last year, when it was shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction, of course, went on to win it. And it was just, oh, it took me on a journey. <laughs> what a beautiful piece of work. I guess I guess you, you have so much to put down onto the paper, but what about taking things off the paper? Do you find time to read yourself? You know, it's I, it's funny that you should say that because I, I while I'm in the middle of writing a book and certainly as I'm sort of approaching the end, um, I find I have less and less time for reading. And mm. so one of the great joys um, of finishing a book and putting it out into the world is that, you know, now finally I have I have unlimited time to read and it's it's just wonderful. Oh, so do you find that it can be quite stop start? I guess you go through periods where you'll get, you have lots of time to write. You'll have lots of time to read and then and then periods where they're just there are no more books going in. 
That's right. And especially um, I, I find that when I'm writing, I do read a lot of nonfiction. Okay. Um, very often it's research. So for example, for the book of form and emptiness, I was um, I was reading a lot of uh, books about mental health and about uh, hearing voices and, um, you know, but but so many other things as well. I was reading a lot of Walter Benjamin and philosophy and, and Zen. And I was also reading books about, you know, clutter clearing. So, yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> a sort of very wide range, you know, um, and and so that generally takes up, you know, that that is all my reading time. Um, but then, you know, when when uh, you know when I finally finish and the book is out in the world doing its thing, uh, you know, I can finally turn my attention back to fiction, and um, and that is just such a joy. But of course, the problem is is that you know the books pile up, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, they're they're coming at us fast and furious. And, and certainly during the pandemic, I mean, all these writers, they were writing, you know, and so there was this huge, it seemed to me anyway, a surge of new books coming out in the last, you know, wonderful books um, coming out in the last couple of years. And so now I'm just desperately trying to catch up. I know the feeling. It felt like there were more than ever and you just want to get through them because you hear amazing things about so many of them. I, I guess like even being on the the long list when that came out, you're like, oh, look at these women who are writing these amazing books. I need to get through them. That's right. That's right. That's right. And I wasn't able to get through everything on the, the long list, but I certainly read all of the books yeah. on the short list and they were wonderful. You know, it, it was just, it was such a wonderful group to be a part of. I, I felt, I felt very, very honored. Oh, you get such a sense of that when you stand in that room and, and they're all on the stage when you're doing the readings and you just think, wow, these, yeah. these, these are the, the minds and the souls and the spirits behind these books that we have so loved this year. Yeah. Um, a, a big theme and a, a setting in um, the Book of Form and Emptiness is, of course, the library. Was that a place that you spent a lot of time when you were a child? I did. I did. I've always, of course, I mean, I think most writers have their, you know, their, their right, you know, their library stories. Right. And, um, but, but uh, certainly when I was a child, when I was really quite young, my mother would take me to the library and, you know, other, other children would do kind of summer things during summer vacation. And my mother, you know, the thing that I did with her was to go to the library and she would, you know, she would bring me down into the basement, which is where the, you know, the children's section was and, um, and leave me there, you know, for oh. <laughs> hours you know, for hours at a time and and it was it, it was just beautiful you know and and I thought the librarians were all so kind and I thought um I I thought that was their house um I thought they lived in the library and I thought all of those books were theirs and and I thought they were just these kind kind of magical women they were all women you know um who who had all of these books and would would lend them to me you know they would give me as many as i wanted and i could take them home and then bring them back and get some more you know and um so i remember when i was really little i, I thinking that you know this was ideal i mean i thought they were very wealthy because you know the they own all these books <laughs> they own all these books and the building they lived in was really magnificent yeah. you know a big brick building you know very impressive and um and so i remember thinking that i you know i wanted to be a librarian that was my that was my um that was sort of the pinnacle of my ambition at one point and when did the aspirations towards being a librarian turn to being a writer I don't think they ever have dissipated entirely I think there's still a part of me that you know really would like to be a librarian mm -hmm. I, I spend a lot of time in libraries it's when I go to a new city it's usually one of the first things I do is is check out the public library and just walk around um I I, I there's something about the 
atmosphere of libraries that I just think is, is magical, you know? Um, So it just being surrounded by all those books and knowing, I think too, in a way, the, the more I write, the more I understand and appreciate what it is that goes into a book, you know, what it is that goes into making a book. And, and when I think about, you know, all of those books and all of those pages and all of those writers who have, you know, pretty much experience similar kinds of, of, of things, you know, experience the, the, the sense of despair, (laughs) you know, and anxiety and also, you know, tremendous excitement and elation, you know, just uh, all of the, the emotions that go into writing a book and also, you know, how long it takes to write a book. I mean, when you think about the human hours represented by, you know, your average collection in a big, you know, municipal library. I mean, it, it's it's staggering, really. You know, to think about yeah. the amount of human hours that go into writing all of that. You know, all of those books. Yeah, you can't conceive of how many hours have been put into every single page in that big magical house, the home of the librarian, the librarian right. who owns every book. I love <laughs> that idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about your first book, Shelfie book, which is the Pillar Book of C. Shonagon. This is a fascinating, detailed account of Japanese court life in the 11th century, written by a lady of the court. Um, This book enthralls with its lively gossip, witty observations, and subtle impressions. Tell us a bit about it. Well, I mean, I think you did a beautiful job describing it, uh, you know, just now. The Heian period uh, lasted from about, uh, it was like the late 700s to the early um, 1100s. Um, I guess maybe the late 1100s. And, um, you know, it was a brief period in uh, Japan when the capital of Japan moved to Kyoto. And um, and it was a period that was really just known for the arts, you know, the, the literary arts, um, you know, painting, but and also just a kind of exquisite courtly lifestyle. And and so, as you said, Seishonagon was a, you know, she was a lady in waiting to the Empress Sadako. And, um, and she was, I think, probably worked at the court for about 10 or 11 years. And during that period, um, she wrote this book called The Pillar Book. And um, I found it, um, I found an early copy of it um, translated by, oh, wow. uh, yeah, by, <laughs> um, by Arthur Whaley. Um, and this, this was a copy that my mother uh, had when, you know, when I was growing up. And I remember taking it from her bookshelf, just being intrigued by, you know, by the title, the pillow book, right? Mm. Um, and wondering what on earth that was. And and I'm, I, again, must have been pretty young. And I read this on the cover. Nearly a thousand years ago, this book was written by a woman who was equally famous for her wit, her poetry, and her lovers. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> and I remember reading this and thinking, you know, mom... You know, like what, what is what is my mother reading? You know, and and then I I you know I think I probably snuck it into you know my bedroom and and started reading it myself. And and um and it's true. I mean that this is this is exactly what it's uh you know the I think the book is famous for um it, you know it's an account by Seishonagon uh, um of court life at that time, and it's just filled with little anecdotes and um, memories and. Um, you know, just small kind of descriptions of the ornate, 
elaborate rituals of the court. Um, it's it's absolutely fast. A lot of gossip, you know, it, mm-hmm. and it's it's just absolutely fascinating. Um, I, I remember thinking of her. You know, I used to be a documentary filmmaker, and um, and so I remember thinking of her as a kind of proto documentarian. You know, um, as a somebody who had that kind of documentarian's eye, and you know, would record all of her observations. Um, one of the things that I love so much about this book is uh, she has these lists, right? There's there's like 164 lists in in the book, right? Um, and the book the the lists are just they're just kind of mind boggling. Okay. I mean, usually when you write lists, you know, when I write lists anyway, I write lists of, you know, shopping lists or yeah. grocery lists or, Let's do you know, lists. to-do lists, lots of to-do lists. I mean, I love lists. So, you know, oh, yeah. but, um, but say Shonagon had a very different take on it. She wrote lists um, with titles like um, annoying things or deceptive <laughs> things or embarrassing things. Um, things that give me an uncomfortable feeling, right? Or um, rare, I think she had rare things, squalid things, um, things that have lost their power, right? Mm. Um, and then the, my favorite list was um, things that make the heart beat faster. Isn't that lovely? And it's and, something and to take note of, you know? Sometimes I need to stop and take stock of the things that make my heart beat faster. Beat faster. And <laughs> and I, I realized something then, you know, sort of reading these lists, um, which is that, you know, if you, that your taxonomies change the way that you perceive the world and change the way that you experience the world, mm-hmm. right? And so if you only make lists of things to do, right? Then that's all you'll do. You'll just do the things on your to-do list. Those are the things that will preoccupy you. But if you make lists of things that make the heart beat faster, your heart will beat faster, you know? And and I remember thinking, oh, uh, you know, I am obviously not paying attention to the right things um, because, you know, my, my lists are just so banal and quotidian compared to Sejanagon's lists. And so I started to, I started to try to think about, yeah, I started to actually use her lists instead of mine. Um, And, and it really is, it's, it's kind of amazing. It just changes your orientation. I've literally just written down things that make the heart beat faster because I'm going to begin my list as soon as we finish (laughs) this podcast recording. (laughs) And that is what I'm going to do. Good, good. your, Your book's Uh, often do explore the intersection Mm. between Japan and North America and the ways in which cultural identities and histories can shape our experiences of the world. How important is it for you to tell these stories? Oh, it's very important. Um, You know, when I was growing up, um, I was born in 1956, uh, which was, um, you know, 11 years after the end of World War II. Mm. And you know, Japan and America were at war with each other. Um, and my mother's Japanese and my father's American. Um, and so, but of course, you know, I, I wasn't aware as a, as a young child, I wasn't aware of the war, except, you know, I was aware of the kind of emanations, you know, from the war, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't aware of that because children aren't. Um, and, and I didn't realize how much the war impacted my experience as a child growing up. Um, you know, I when I was growing up, I, I was a voracious reader. Um, but most of the books that I was reading were written by um, by 
white men by Anglo-Saxon, you know, um, men, um, many of whom were, you know, many of whom were dead. Um, the women who I read were also, you know, they were white, they were American or they were British. Um, and, and I just didn't, you know, it didn't bother me. I loved these books, right? I, I, I grew up, you know, just sort of madly in love with these stories. Um, but it never occurred to me that, um, you know, that, that I could write, you know, books like this, right? Um, or, or that I could really write any kind of books. I mean, uh, you know, just to give you some context too, um, there weren't any, uh, you know, Asian American writers when I was little. Mm. Um, uh, I think Maxine Hong Kingston didn't publish Warrior Women until I was in my 20s. Um, Amy Tan didn't, you know, Joy Luck Club wasn't published until I was, you know, in my late 30s. Um, so there just there weren't any models that I was aware of. And um, and and so, you know, I just had this sense that, you know, that this was off limits to me somehow. Um, I, I just didn't realize that that I could do it. Um, and I remember when I was when I was uh, in high school, for example, just starting to to write um, sort of casting about for, a, you know, a form, a literary form that I felt that I could comfortably inhabit and really not finding one. Um, and I remember, too, thinking, well, you know, maybe I should try writing haiku, you know, um, because that was something I was kind of culturally entitled to. But, you know, I, I'm very verbose and and very wordy and my whole orientation toward you know towards storytelling is more novelistic and so mm. the idea of kind of fitting all of this into 17 syllables just really never you know never really worked for me at all um so in any case i mean it it really wasn't until i um you know i i became a filmmaker and and you know did all of that um but it wasn't until i sat down to to write um, that I, and this was at the age of 39, I think, um, I, start, I started to write My Year of Meats, that I realized that I wanted to tell the story from the point of view of a mixed race person, um, that that was important to me because the story I wanted to tell was a story, you know, that was essentially bicultural. Yeah. Um, half of it was set in the U.S. and half of it was set in um, in Japan. Um, and it was very much about cultural representation and misrepresentation. Um, it was a book about, um, it was a book about television. So it was a book about um, uh, the one of the protagonists is an American mixed race woman. Uh, her name was Jane Takagi Little. And um, she's a she's a documentarian. She's a TV producer, right? And she's making this television show, a cooking show, kind of cooking reality show um, for distribution in Japan. And so the other character is a Japanese woman who's watching this, right? And um, and so writing from this perspective of someone who straddles two cultures um, and, and you know, um, is trying to represent one culture to the other culture um, is something that I think, well, I mean, growing up, I felt very much in that position myself and certainly in the work that I'd done in television, um, you know, it was a position that I found myself cast in as well. And this book, The Puller Book, I mean, it's faced many challenges by translators in capturing the essence of Seishanagon's writing and your book, A Tale for the Time Being. It's been translated, we said in the intro, 28 times. Yeah. Do you feel, I mean, can you know, can you ever know if the essence of your writing was translated as you'd have hoped? I mean, do you speak 28 languages? How could you ever know? <laughs> no, no. You know, but you can never know 
you can never know in English either. You know, mm. I mean, I wrote the book in English for English speakers. Um, but, you know, all I can do is when I'm writing is to write it as clearly and as, you know, accurately and as precisely and as beautifully as I can, right? Um, once it leaves my computer and goes out into the world, it, it has a life of its own. Yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, when I first started writing, um, feeling kind of not upset exactly, but feeling disturbed or, you know, when, when people misread the book somehow. Right. But then I realized too, that there really is no such thing as a misreading, you know, it, it's more just that, um, you know, when the book goes out into the world, um, you know, the, the, it becomes not mine anymore. It becomes a collaboration. And I think essentially that's what writing is. Writing is a collaboration between a writer and a reader. Um, and I do my part, you know, and then the book goes out into the world and then the reader brings, um, you know, her life experience, lived experience to the page and brings the book to life in a completely different way. And so it's a, I think it's a really quite a beautiful phenomenon, really. It's the alchemy of of, of fiction, you know, in that we think of, you know, the book of form and emptiness as a book, a singular object, but it's not, it's an array, right? It's an array of experience. Um, and it's constantly changing, but that's exactly why it's alive, right? And the reader will take what they need from it when they need from it, because, you know, I can read the same book at two different parts of my life, two different stages of my existence, and it will mean something completely different because it becomes alchemy with my existence and exactly. the way that I read and the way that I live and the way that I, I love and breathe. And you don't read the same book twice you never exactly you can't read the same book you twice can't. because because you are always going to be different yeah we're that's always right. in flux in motion the book okay. is alive yeah but we'll talk about your second book which yeah. is I mean it, it it really is alive because it pulls on every single heartstring it makes you feel every single feeling and it's a little life by mm. Hanya Yanagihara shortlisted for the women's prize back in 2016 this is the story of four graduates as they embrace the seemingly limitless possibilities of their bright New York City futures, but which descends into a dark and involving tale of toxic relationships and the scars of childhood. When did you read this book? Can you talk me through how it impacted you, how it made you feel? Yeah, I didn't read it when it first came out because I think I was scared of it. Mm. <laughs> I had heard, you know, I had heard, I'd read reviews, I'd um, heard people uh, talking about it. Um, it, you know, it, it's a it, it's a book about trauma, and I think, and it's also very very fat. Mm, no, it's a big old book. <laughs> it is it's a big massive. fat <laughs> book, right? And and so I don't know whether it was the content that scared me or just the heft. But in any case, um, I remember putting it off because I was writing at the time, too. Um, and I was working on, um, you know, the, the book of form and emptiness at the time. Um, and I just couldn't take the time away to, you know, to read this massive book. Um, and then it was very interesting because I was also teaching and my students um, would come in and they would 
you know, very often talk about their favorite books. And several of them mentioned this book, um, mentioned A Little Life. And so I began to, I began to get really intrigued, you know, what is it about this book that is appealing to, um, you know, my college students? Um, and I, one of the things too, um, is that um, Hanya Yanagihara uh, went to Smith College, which is where I also went and which is where I teach. Yeah. Um, and so that was a connection that I that I had with with Hanya and with um, uh, and, and maybe that was partly why the students were reading it because you know they knew that she was an alum. Um, I'm not sure, but in any case, they really loved it. And um, so that made me even more uh, determined to read it. And I sat down, I remember sitting down to read it. And um, and literally just not being able to put it down. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's this it's this massive it, tome. I, I don't remember how many pages there are, but um, but I I could not stop reading and I could not stop turning those pages. And it was interesting, too, because I uh, recently was um, I was in uh, doing a library event at a high school um, in Boise, Idaho. And um, the uh, librarian asked me, um, what was a book that I wish I had read when I was a high school student, you know, and I thought about it. I mean, it's one of those impossible questions, you know, what is the one book that, you know, fill in the blank, and it's just, you know, my mind immediately goes blank. But then I, I I thought about this book and 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 I realized it probably would be this you know if this book had existed when I was a high school student um, I wish I I would have liked to have read it and um, and I, I I say that partly because um, you know of the content of the book but also because one of the things I admire so much about this is that Hanya Yanagihara is not writing from a place of identity you mm. know or at least overt identity the you know the way that we um the way that we often define identity these days you know um uh she's not writing um you know from a female point of view she's not writing from uh you know an asian point of view um she's writing about four men right um and you know there even today i think that is um a fairly unusual and fairly bold move literary move right and I wish that I'd I wish I'd uh, known that that was possible when I was a high school student because I think I would have wasted a lot less time. And what were you like as a high school student, as a teenager? Um, I well, that's the other thing is that I think I was fascinated by suffering, you know, because I was suffering so right. tremendously, right? I mean, we do, right? And in, in as teenagers, um, I was certainly, yeah, I, I was, um, you know very, very interested in, in writing. Um, but I think I was in a lot of pain. Um, you know, I was, I was, um, trying to come to terms with some, uh, you know, traumatic stuff that I didn't really understand and couldn't yet name. Um, so I think there was, there was that, um, I, I, the, what saved me really when I was a, a high school student, I think was um, the group of people uh, I was hanging out with. Um, I was a member of the high school literary magazine and right, we, we, yeah. And we took ourselves very seriously. You know, we, we, <laughs> as only teenagers can, right? I know it. I do know it. <laughs> 
And, you know, and so we, you know, we would have these editorial meetings yeah. and, you know, we were all smoking cigarettes and you know, mm. drinking coffee, black coffee. And, um, and we would have these very serious editorial meetings. And we really thought that we were, you know, Virginia Woolf and, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald and, you know, Faulkner and Hemingway. I mean, we, we you know, we were these people, right? And, um, and, and so we took our pain and our suffering very seriously. Uh, at least that's how I remember it. Um, but it was, you know, it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful thing. And many of the um, students, you know, who were in my cohort in high school have, have gone on to become um, writers of fiction and nonfiction poetry. Um, you know, it, it really was a, a remarkable group of, of people. Susan Minot was in my um, group and Julie Glass and um, David Michaelis. Uh, anyway, there was a large group um of us who uh you know who were involved <laughs> at that point your women's prize winner book the book of form and emptiness is about the deep solace that can be found in books in reading in escaping to those worlds when you need to and I read in an interview actually um that you said books saved your life when you were young is that through that group of people or is is that books in general throughout the course of your childhood it's books in general. Um, it's both, really. It's it's the um, the group of of uh, readers and writers who I um, you know was a student with in in high school um, and in college as well. Um, but also, I think it was just the relationship with writing and with mm -hmm. with books, with writing and reading. Um, you know, it was always a place that I could escape to. I, I'm an, you know, I was an only child. Um, my parents were both uh, quite old for, you know, to be parents. They had me when they were 42. Um, so, and they were both scholars. Um, so our house was very quiet and, you know, we would eat meals together, but the rest of the time, um, you know, they were involved in their own you know, reading and writing projects. Um, and so I was really left to my own devices and that meant reading. Um, and, mm. and so I was, you know, I, I was just, a, uh, I, I read constantly as a child. Um, it was, it was such an important part of my life. I remember, um, my mother, you know, I also took, you know, music lessons and I, um, played the piano and the, and the flute. Um, and I remember though, the, the conflict of, of having to practice, you know, practice the flute, at the, you know, when I was in the middle of, say, reading Jane Eyre and, um, you know, and again, you know, you can't put it down. Right. So I remember <laughs> I remember balancing Jane Eyre on the music stand. Right. And learning to play scales and arpeggios while, while reading, reading it. right. You know, and, and playing and then turning the page and playing Talk about multitasking. Yeah. I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether shaken in a cocktail, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Check out baileys.com for our favourite Bailey's recipes. Well, that brings us on to the third book that you brought with you today, which is Harriet the Spy. Ah. 
Hi, Louise. Fits you. Harriet the Spy has a secret notebook that she fills with utterly honest jottings about her parents, her classmates and her neighbours. You've got it there in front of you every day on her spy route. She observes and notes down anything of interest to her. But when Harriet's notebook is found by her schoolmates, their anger and retaliation and Harriet's unexpected responses explode in a hilarious way. How can you pick this one? You know, I I was obsessed with books about girls who wanted to be writers, or in this case, I mean, Harriet very much identified as a writer. Um, She was a tomboy. Uh, She was, you know, she was not a kind of idealized little girl character at all. She, you know, she had a mean streak. Um, She was just relentlessly honest, which is what got her into trouble. Um, and, you know, she she was curious and she had this spy route. She lived in New York, right? And and um, she had this spy route that she would, um, she would go on and observe people and write down all of her observations and her, um, her opinions about things. And um, there was, you know, this just spoke to me. I mean, that's the kind of little girl I was and and wanted to be, you know. Um, She had, you know, she had her little spy tools, you know. (laughs) She had, you know, a flashlight that she hung from her belt and a, you know, not a Swiss army knife. I had the Swiss army knife, but you know what I mean? Like a little, you know, knife that she would carry with her and, um, and a little pouch for her notebook. And I don't know. I mean, it was just everything about her was just, you know, it, it, was aspirational. Um, and, you know, I mean, just to show you how deep this goes, this is my, Oh, that's yours from, this is no, it's now. I still use I was like, it's in great Nick. (laughs) No, no. I still order these composition notebooks. I order them and I use them. It's my, it's my journal, you know, I've got, I've got a couple here as well. I like to journal every morning, every evening, just yep. what's going on. And it's right. adding to it lists things that make the heartbeat faster. That's right. That's and right. In the journal too. Why yeah. did you become a writer? I mean, yeah. you said about being verbose and wanting to get yeah. all of these words out. I think that was it. I mean, I think, you know, part of it was that I didn't really have, I mean, I had playmates. I had friends when I was mm-hmm. growing up at school, but, you know, a lot of the time I was at home and didn't really have anybody to talk to um, except for my you know, my diaries, my journals. And, um, and so that was, you know, it it was like having friends, you know, Um, having a, you know, somebody I could talk to who uh, would never get tired of me and, and would always be interested and always be willing to listen. And, you know, so I had this kind of a, um, a conversation with uh, journals that, has really continued. I mean, I, I still do this. I do this in my composition notebook, but I also have a um, a separate uh, journal, a process journal um, that I reserve just for writing. And it's the place um, I can go to when, you know, I mean, I write in it almost every day when I'm, you know, when I'm seriously working on a project. Um, and it's a place where I can just kind of dump my ideas and my fears and my speculations. And, um, you know, if I have questions, I'll just ask a bunch of questions into the journal. Um, and somehow, you know, just the act of 
asking a question invites answers, Mm -hmm. right? So I found that, you know, if I can just write down a question or a series of questions, then it's almost like it activates, you know, or opens a loop in my brain. Um, And then some other part of my brain, some unconscious part of my brain starts to, it goes to work um, on finding answers to these questions. So very often, for example, if one day I, you know, will write down a bunch of questions, the next day, suddenly I'll know what the answers are, right? Um, so, you know, I use the the process journal for that. Um, you know, it just about anything, really. It, it's, it's just a place where, um, it, it's more like a persona, you know, mm. or a facet of self. Um, you know, uh, somebody I can talk to, um, again, who never gets bored, you know, (laughs) who never gets tired of my complaining, you know, um, and is willing to listen. It's time to talk about your fourth book today, which is A Writer's Diary by Virginia Woolf, an invaluable guide to the arts and mind of Virginia Woolf, drawn from the personal record that she kept over a period of 27 years included are entries that refer to her own writing and those that are relevant to the raw material of her work and finally comments on the books she was reading we were getting very meta here why did you pick this well first of all I have to I have to be a little bit more specific and say that it is this particular volume okay. of uh Virginia Woolf's uh a writer's diary it is the Persephone book's volume uh, edition that I bought when I was in London um when I went to Persephone books and um and I just think it is so beautiful um mm-hmm. I had a different edition when I was uh when I was in um, high school um and when I was in college but when I found this and something about the end papers and the you know the um this dove gray cover uh it, it just thrills me. Um, so in any case, I started rereading uh, this when, um, you know, after I bought it after my trip to London. And I'm trying to think now, I guess I was, I had just finished A Tale for the Time Being um, and was in London probably doing the publicity for that book and uh, and picked up this copy then and started reading it. And again, just was thrown back to um to high school which is when i first started reading virginia wolf mm-hmm. and and i think there was a probably a long period in there where i didn't read virginia wolf um so you know it was kind of you know i was having this experience of deja vu of feeling of um you know of of having read the diary back in high school when I was still writing haiku and, you know, (laughs) trying to figure out, you know, trying to figure out how to be a writer. And then years later, decades later, coming back to the book and reading it, having just published my third novel. And of course, as as you so beautifully put it earlier, I was a different person, Mm -hmm. right? So the lived experience I was bringing to Virginia Woolf's diary, uh, three decades later was completely different. And so it was like reading a different book. And I was able to appreciate things that she wrote about writing and uh, particularly about publishing that 
that I never could have appreciated back when I was 15, 16 years old. Right. And it was, so it was a, it was a feeling of almost coming home in a very profound way, uh, coming back to coming home to this thing that was this text that was so familiar uh, on one hand, but also, you know, that, that, that I felt was completely new that I, that I felt like I'd never really understood before. And, and that was a, that was a powerful, powerful feeling. You said that reading is an act of empathy. It helps us connect with others to understand their perspectives, to walk a day in their shoes. How does this influence the way that you approach writing? Do you bear that in mind when you're creating your characters, when you're writing your pieces? What, what advice would you give to writers who want to create that empathy in their readers? I, you know, I would never think of it as, um, I, I guess I would never approach it from that perspective, which mm-hmm. strikes me as a, a kind of uh, what, um, that's that's the end point. That's yeah. the result, right? Sort it's of a, quite emotionally manipulative to feel like this is what yeah. I need people to feel. Exactly, exactly. What's important for me is, and and if people empathize with the characters in the end, great. That's 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 wonderful. Um, on the other hand, if they don't, that's okay too. Um, what's important to me when I'm writing is just that I am able to enter the body mind of my character and inhabit it as fully as I can, mm-hmm. um, and as, com- you know, as completely, as intimately as I can. And and here too is where meditation is very helpful. Um, in, in the kind of meditation that I practice, it's a very physical kind of, you know, it's a very physical kind of practice in that you're very, you're sitting perfectly still with your eyes kind of downcast and, but all of your senses are open right? And so you're just very, very acutely aware of everything that's happening in the moment, um, all of, you know, with all of your senses and your mind. And when I'm writing, very often, I will um, think of the scene that I'm writing and the character who I'm writing, and I'll close my eyes at the computer, and I'll close my eyes and, and in my imagination, sort of cast myself into the body mind of the character. And do the same kind of uh, exercise, tuning in to and opening all of the sense gates, you know, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the, you know, the, the, the mouth, the tongue, you know, and, um, and really in that state of, you know, with all the senses open, just investigate the scene, right? Try to understand, you know, so what's in the room looking around what's in the room what is my character you know what is she what is she feeling right now what is she hearing what is she tasting um you know what what thoughts are going through her mind you know just trying to kind of open up to the subjective experience of the character um as fully as i can and then to very quietly sort of start to write from that place and it just reminds me often that uh, characters, you know, we're very visually oriented, you know, in, in this culture. And, um, and one of the problems I think that I am constantly combating is, um, to, you know, to sort of be too internal with my Mm -hmm. characters. And so just to remind myself that characters have 
five senses and their mind, you know, um, is, is very, very useful. It's just a, it's a kind of, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a way of reminding myself to use, to take advantage of, of, you know, all that we can sense, you know, they they exist in the world. They 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 exist in the world. That's right. That's right. That's right. Your fifth bookshelfy book Mm -hmm is The Brilliant Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, winner of the 2021 Women's Prize for Fiction. This strange and beautiful novel just weaves a rich, fantastical vision of a very singular house and its mysterious inhabitants. When I said its name there, Ruth, you sort of clutched at your heart. Tell me why you did this. <laughs> I do clutch at my heart whenever I, <laughs> whenever I think about this book or whenever I recommend it to people. You know, I wouldn't have read this book, I think, if it hadn't been for the Women's Prize. Same let's here. just let's just start by let's saying be that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember when I'm when we I was a, I was a judge that year. I remember when we were picking the long list and reading it for about fifty pages, just going, no, no, not for me, not for me. Like why would? I? And then boom, once you're in, you are in. Oh my gosh, transporting, transporting, absolutely transporting, and I. I started, I think I started listening to it as an audio book. Okay. And it was, it was very beautifully performed. Um, but after a little while, you know, maybe half an hour or so, I realized that it was going too fast and I just wanted to slow it down. And so I went out and bought a hard, you know, a a physical copy of the book. And then I proceeded to do both, listen and read the book. So I'd listen to some of it and then I'd go back and read that passage so I could have the experience of of seeing it on the page. And then I would hear, listen to the next bit and then I would read the bit. And when I finally got to the end of both, I went back and did the thing all over again. I I didn't want to leave the world, right. you know, and even now when I think about it, I'm not even sure why exactly, but I just get choked up. Mm. You know, it's a very emotional book for me. Um, and I think, you know, I, I kind of understand why um, there's something so amazing about the narrative voice, Perenese's voice, um, which is, I just, it's, it's hard to describe. It's just exquisitely naive um, and trusting and honest and guileless and completely unironic. And at the same time, there's a kind of overarching dramatic irony that's going on because of course, little by little, you start to understand as the reader that the world is not what Piranesi thinks it is. Mm-hmm. And that, that in fact, you know, that, that, that he's an unreliable narrator, but, but he's the most beautifully unreliable narrator, you know, and he's such an, he's so exquisitely precise in his, mm-hmm. you know, in the way that he kind of notices things and catalogs. And here too, it's interesting because, um, you know, I go back to now uh, to the, to the first book, to the pillow book of Seishonagon, right? Um, The Piranesi's lists and his observations, right? And, and the incredible detail you know that of of the, the the statues, for example, and the tides and the oceans and the you know. So in a way, there's a kind of um, 
there there's a kind of uh what uh, you know a kind of documentary um uh aspect to this as well i mean he is he's documenting the house right and mm. he's documenting all of the goings on in the house um it's just a book like no other it and, really is. yeah and I, I just love it. And now even talking about it makes me want to go back and read it yet again. I think the other thing, too, is that I'm a I'm a, uh, a huge fan of um, the Argentinian writer um, uh, Borges, sí. Jorge Luis Borges, right? <laughs> <Yo también>. and, <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, so this I think th this book reminds me of, for example, the library of, of Babylon, and no, sorry, of Babel, the, the Library of Babel or um, the Garden of the Forking Paths or, um, you know, other books of, of Borges. It's got that same attention, exquisite attention to detail and also this unbelievable magic. So it incredible. Utterly transporting. Yeah. Um, Piranesi, of course, was the winner of the 2021 Women's Prize. And you said yourself, you probably wouldn't have picked it up had it not been there, had it not been sort of suggested to you. And that right. shows the power of the prize, how important it is. What was your own experience of winning the Women's Prize last oh, year? Oh, my goodness. I, I honestly did not expect it. It was the, it, it, it truly was the last thing I expected. I had a full day of plans lined up for the day after the award. <laughs> I had, you know, people I was going to see. I, I was, you know, going to go with a friend to get a Manny Petty. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> sorry to which, I never, your <laughs> which I never do. I mean, I, you know, I never do that. Um, but, and, and I didn't, right. Uh, no, I, I, this is all just to say that I, I had no, idea you know um it was completely unexpected the other books in the you know who were nominated um on you know on the shortlist were so wonderful mm. and um and and i guess what i really come away with is that um that yes it was wonderful to of course it was wonderful to win the award and it was wonderful to be in that cohort of women writers and women readers and um you know, the, the entire cohort of the, the women's prize, right. Um, it, it's, as I, as I think I, I said, you know, this has been, um, being part of women's institutions has been a very, very important, you know, it's been a very important part of my life. Um, I would not be a writer had it not been for the support, um, of, of the women who I've met in my life. And so to be able to be part of that women's lineage, um, was was really, you know, was and is, continues to be very, very special. Um, and I, I just feel very grateful. Oh, and, and long may it continue because it is just absolutely brilliant. Ruth, my final question to you is if you had to choose just one book from your list that you brought today, as a, I knew just, so the hand's just gone straight to the mouth. <laughs> you look shocked and appalled. As a favourite, Ruth, which one would it be and why? Oh my God, that's so unfair. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That is so unbelievably unfair. Um, because they're all so different. How can you ask me that? Um I don't well, think yeah. Well, we've spoken about how you need different books at different times in your life, and these have obviously all impacted you for different reasons at different times in this one moment right now. So we're not going to hold you to it because it can change um, in an hour. But in this one moment right now, which one means the most to you? 
That was a very Zen thing you just did. <laughs> I just want to point out that was very good. That was very skillful. Fine. I'll say it. Piranesi. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's partly because in, in preparation for uh, talking to you today, I felt I should revisit it. And yeah. I started, I started reading it again and I felt excited and inspired. And I think that's why I'm, that's why I'm choosing it. Um, I, it inspired me to write and to read again. And yeah, so that is priceless. And on that note, you're back in. I'm going to leave you to Piranesi to, to be transported to that world once again. But thank you for joining us in hours on the podcast. It's been such a joy to speak to you. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun. I'm Vic Hope and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.